This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later, the co-founders of Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo are back to get us ready for the next expo, Saturday the 25th at the Fayetteville Town Center. Last Thursday, in celebration of Black History Month, our partner podcast, Undisciplined, took the show on the road. Live from the Squire Jehagan Outreach Center in the historically black neighborhood of Fayetteville, a panel spoke about black erasure in Northwest Arkansas. The panel included Sharon Killian, president of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association, Chris Seawood, a member of the MLK Council in Northwest Arkansas, Tommy Davis, a descendant of this neighborhood, and Ngazi Brown, a professor and expert in historical preservation. We start our conversation here with Professor Brown and talking about the use of the term blight to describe these neighborhoods historically. Some of those communities did have businesses, right? and then the businesses were were snuffed out, exactly. And and then we get the scraps that are left over. I I was having a conversation with a a girlfriend of mine about um, the black woman, because, you know, we're we're a unique species. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And we were talking about chitlins. <laughs> I know that you're like, how does this relate? We tend to we tend to take the scraps yeah. and turn it into a, a meal. Okay. And then everybody come and eat it. Black <laughs> girl magic, baby. Is. So a lot of these communities that you see that don't have anything, they did have something. Mm-hmm. Even if it was the, um, the grand, you know, granddaddy made it with lumber from his, you know, that he found or something. Yeah. There was something there. And that's why it is so important to establish um, some type of um, recognition of these spaces. Right. And so, you know, this idea of erasure, these spaces exist, and it does happen that people think they never existed because they are so cleanly and firmly erased that right. you never know it was there. There's no trace of it. But we can find traces of it, right? You found traces yes. of these communities the f- in the phone books, yes. in, the, in, the, in the Fayetteville Public Library archives. What have you found? I found a lot of different things, you know. First of all, I must say, let me, let me just uh, stick one something in the middle of this conversation. Every once in a while, you find some allies and you don't have to do every single thing yourself. We, we, you know, because we're, we're, there's humanity. We are human beings who deserve that. And so we have, and we call allies usually around here, we call white people. You know, black people, they're, part of the, they're always part of the struggle. I got a copy of the book, okay? I got a copy of the 1945 plan what they call master plan. Great, of course I can get online and find it, but here it is with a bunch of other things and you know, set forth. And you find that as they're telling you in this master plan that, that they have been doing, they say in, in the master plan, we have been working on this master plan since before 1900, and now we have to, we have to write it down and we're gonna tell you because it's only us talking what we are actually going to do. I find clues in those places, okay? So you find, you find clues as to where people live. You where can people map, lived, you, you can map. actually map these places yes. based on addresses that you've found from archival documents. Yes, and you find the, the responses, you know, they, do, they go through it and do 
they say they're doing like um, surveys of the community. Right. And, and you know, they, they indicate race right. in some places and the blighted community. They say, we're going to get rid of the blighted community because we, this is a really a beautiful town and we want people to come here and live. But we have to get rid of the blight. Mm -hmm. The blight is the black community. They yeah. actually say it. That's the, that's the formula, though, to yes. declare it blight, right? Yes. Then declare imminent domain. And then you can bring in whoever you want into this frontier. <laughs> but what you have are, you have the houses that were safe for black people to come uh, to stop. Mm -hmm. The Green Book. The Green Book houses. There are three here. Okay? There are the, there's a house where Silas Hunt actually stayed with the family. Because he couldn't stay on campus because at the University of Arkansas. Because he couldn't stay on campus. Yeah. There's the place, one of our community members right now, she owns a house on the land where this young black person from um, Pine Bluff came to go to school and he brought himself his house and put it on the land. <laughs> and then when he was finished, he was able to move it. Mm. But we find these things by searching and talking, and, but most of it is, is not recorded because we are, you know, not that we can't write and you're read and all than. of that. You're less than. Your history and you is not important. You don't belong in the system of where the news exists. So it's, it's a, as a historian, it's very important, you know, when we're talking about, you said erasure rather than forgotten, that these are deliberate things and they're institutions and spaces that are in collusion with these kinds of things. The archive is one because, you know, what goes into the archive? What does the oh. librarian deem important? I've got when a good the one. researcher goes in there to find what is important to write about, what do they think is important? So it's multiple levels of silencing and erasure that happens because you're being overlooked and overlooked again and again in the process. If I didn't know Lodine Defaba's name. I wouldn't have noticed it as I was looking for black history at the University of Arkansas Special Collections. Because this black woman who was doing that fight, you know, trying to hold on the, to the community, her papers are in some, a, a white woman's documents, in her box, in the white woman's box. Mm -hmm. It's just a lucky thing that I knew her name and it came to me that this is Lodi Defaba. That's great. Or well, even where we are right now, this building, it's named after again. a freed slave, and this building itself was is the yep. site of an arson that the building was burned down from racists, and it's been burned down multiple times. So, um, and has been the site for sit-ins from students at the university during the Civil Rights Movement, so history, yeah. Why are we sitting on it? Yeah, there, there are traces of it. Did you want to say something? Well, I just I was musing over here about um, your comment. I talked to my students about this today, about the need for there to be a sense of history um, that it gives you a sense of self. And this, this idea of hiding these, these documents or snuffing it out, I think about Bob Marley's um, verse, um, every time I plant a seed, they, they say kill it before it grows. <laughs> and how, how frustrating it is to, to get something started and, and to know that this will have value later, right? And then 
that thing that would have had value that would have um, given your 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 children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren a sense of worth to have that hidden um, so that they so it's not just you know it's it's not this building that's important it's this person's sense of right to be here this person's sense of presence in this space is erased and they no longer know where they come from there's actually a, um, a, a psychological i can't think of the term for it but there's a there is a, a a pathology for not knowing if you even exist right and it, it happens in prisons a lot but it happens right. when people can't connect to the past right. when they don't know where they where they come from where they are and what 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 right do i have to any space right so. yeah where am i rooted where are my folks go ahead chris no. okay so I, I was see, gonna go ahead oh. i see that a lot with the younger generation that grew up here in fayetteville where we had community and we had different places we could go to uh basically know that we were we had each other's back, we knew each other really well, and then when you systematically do things to break down that structure, and there's no united voice anymore, and then you're told, well, y'all don't wanna live in this community because this is the ghetto, this is the, the right. you know, this is the, this. so you, that message So you now get. you're trying to get out the hood, and right. then that hood right. becomes big right. real estate money. Right, but yeah. that's the message we received our entire life right. and everybody black wanted to leave this community because of the negative connotation Absolutely. for this community now look at it exactly and the city knew it mm -hmm. even my mother knew it she was before her time but even she knew it mm -hmm. other homeowners and and community members knew it back then mm -hmm. it was not able to, we couldn't what did you call it uh where they didn't know where they came from because yeah. they didn't have any I, I couldn't remember the term. I said, oh, I said it's a psychological right. term. It's, it's, right. <laughs> Scientifically said that. Right. So, and so I've had to have the discussion with my nephews just about some of their history that they have no idea about because they grew up later and they probably didn't even grow up in this community. So they did not have that connection mm -hmm. with the community. That was Tommy Davis, a descendant of the historically black neighborhood in Fayetteville. You also heard from Ngazi Brown, a professor and expert in historical preservation. Chris Seawood is a member of the MLK Council in Northwest Arkansas, and Sharon Killian is the president of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association. You can hear the full conversation in your podcast feed by subscribing to Undisciplined, wherever you get your podcast. And don't miss out on the next live podcast recording. It's a conversation about the history of food insecurity in Northwest Arkansas. More details on that on our website at KUAF.com slash live podcast. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art is lining up a couple of big names for 2023, Diego Rivera and Annie Leibovitz. The 19th century Mexican painter's works will be featured in Diego Rivera's America, opening next month. And the photographer will have new work included in Annie Leibovitz's portraits. That's this fall. Those may be the most high-profile exhibitions, but there's much more. This month, I met Chief Curator Austin Bailey in the lower lobby of Crystal Bridges on a Tuesday afternoon the day the museum is closed to the public, and asked her what a curator seeks when putting together a season or a year of exhibitions. 
I'm looking actually at variety. I'm looking at what's new. I'm looking at the differences between the experiences and the range of art and artists that people might get to see and be exposed to, possibly for the first time. Also as patrons, we see the 2023 calendar, and it's the first time maybe we've seen it. Maybe we saw it in late 2022. For curators, 2023 is not a surprise. When do you, when do curators start thinking about, you know, when an exhibit will be viewable? The lead up to the appearance of an exhibition is a multi-year process. Sometimes it's a little bit more spontaneous. I'll give you an example. The Tani Takaezu focus show for this fall is something that came together very quickly just in the last couple of months as a way to fill a shift in our calendar for the space. And it's all drawn from our collection. So a kind of quick and easy, really impactful project. The Diego Rivera headline exhibition for 2023, along with Annie Leibowitz, um, that has been in conversation uh, for years. We have been working with SFMOMA. It was impacted by the COVID pandemic uh, and extended and rescheduled and many, many iterations. So that is one where we enter into a partnership and we think about how, all the ways in which it could have an impact in our region over many, many years. Well, let's talk about, you brought up those two names and we'll talk about others too, but Diego Rivera, I mean, I told a friend that's a name and that's an artist who I've seen in books growing up in rural Arkansas, but never really had a chance to see a collection. This is exciting. It really is exciting. I mean, Diego Rivera is one of the great artists of the 20th century on a global scale. And uh, his time in the United States is very significant, very influential. And these works are extraordinary quality. They've been assembled from collections all over the world. And for us to bring that to Arkansas and to think about the ways in which an artist from Mexico is engaged in the concept of American identity and imagery about nationhood and the people couldn't be a better fit. You mentioned working with partners and the Riveras are coming from collections from all over the world. I'm not going to ask you to give away secrets, but what is the, how does that work? I mean, the phone messages, the text messages that must go through all the while as a curator, you're thinking we want to show this sort of narrative or this overview of an artist and a movement. The way that exhibitions are put together is you, for someone like Diego Rivera and to think about Diego Rivera's America, identifying the works that would help tell that story. And then museums have a very formal protocol of requesting works for loan from other institutions or from private collectors. And letters are sent out, rationales for the significance of the show, the scholarship, the new perspectives, all go to making a case so that the person or the institution that owns the work would be willing to lend it and to allow it to be assembled uh, so that people can see this new take on an artist. Annie Leibowitz. I, I don't think there's a living photographer that's better known. And, and this is just really exciting. You can't think of someone whose career stretches across more images in more styles than hers. We're super excited that 
Annie has agreed to develop new work for us. I think one of the things that's really incredible is that we're gonna see her portraiture in a whole new light. Annie is creating 25 new works for the Crystal Bridges collection, and those will be premiered in this project, in this exhibition, and contextualized with work from across her career. So this idea of being able to see how uh, Annie envisions leading people in our nation today in context of her engagement with celebrity and with how to represent people and their character is going to be incredibly exciting. The phrase premiering new works by Annie Leibovitz, I mean, that's, that's something else. It is. We're very, very fortunate that Annie is excited to work with Crystal Bridges. The sitter list for her new work is a very, uh, very confidential. It is unfolding, but we know that people are very excited to accept her invitation to sit for her, uh, partly because she will be showing the work at Crystal Bridges. And we're very grateful to see the ways in which major artists like Andy Leibowitz are excited about what Crystal Bridges is bringing to the region and is bringing to the national conversation about the kinds of shows that matter to our audiences, uh, the kind of content that we want to present uh, to connect with people far and wide and also right here at home. Sonic Blossom really has me interested. This is a really exciting opportunity for us to treat a performance as a kind of mini exhibition. And our curator, Dr. Shusha Rodriguez, uh, has a relationship with Lee Ming-Wei and worked on a presentation of this at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, DC, and is very soon going to be working with local singers and facilitators to bring this gift of song to life. We are so excited that in the fall, anybody who happens to be at Crystal Bridges during the run of this performance if they are in the galleries, will be invited to have the gift of song and have their performer sing to them a Schubert uh, lead. And we know that any major exhibition will then have smaller events tied to them. Think about We the People had something it seemed like every weekend, different speakers. When do those sort of get folded in? We begin working on the programmatic connections with exhibitions, I would say, probably around a year to a little bit less than that out. It takes a lot of advanced planning to bring the high profile speakers and to really thoughtfully and intentionally organize programs that will uh, deepen people's connection to the content or the artistry or the technique, the media. So that uh, we are rolling out probably on a trimester basis, the advanced planning. And sometimes we um, wanna save up the really, really exciting things for a little more of a reveal. But we do work on the programming and the exhibition development in tandem. All right, do you use a, you, a digital calendar, a wall calendar, uh, a date book? Because if you're thinking a year out for programs, maybe several years out for major exhibitions, others get turned around much more quickly. You've got to think programming. How do you stay organized? That is a great question. I would say institutionally staying organized is one level. What we do, we do a lot of prioritization work and we really think about what's mission critical and we really are working to be very intentional about advanced planning. So we're starting to think more on a trimester basis 
for uh, for programming and the stories that we want to highlight for our audiences. And we we use software to help plug in. We used Gantt charts for those are the the kind of Excel spreadsheets that have bar charts, so you can see overlapping schedules on a horizontal basis. We use tools like Asana um, to help us with project management and tasks and a lot of collaborative tools where people can access information, share information, and then we have meetings when we need to make decisions. Well, and we should mention that Stiglitz is viewable now. That's yes. the first of new one of 2023. The Seeing One Another exhibition is not to be missed. It's an extraordinary opportunity to see works from the Alfred Stieglitz collection, which belonged to Fisk University, a historically black college and university in Nashville, Tennessee. We have the works in custody every two years, and then the alternate two years they're in Nashville. This is the first time we've had a chance to do a special exhibition where we're seeing the objects of African art on view, where we're seeing European objects on view, including a Cezanne and a Picasso are on view right now, as well as archival materials, photographs from our library archive showing Georgia O'Keeffe visiting Fisk University, working with students. And we have a variety of interpretive labels written by our summer curatorial interns, our interpretation specialists, our curators. So you're getting a range of perspectives as well on how uh, portraiture, factors into the collections at Fisk and also Crystal Bridges. And some incredible moments, such as a painting by Georgia O'Keeffe called Mask with Golden Apple, displayed right next to the original African mask in the collection that she painted this from. You, you're not jaded, are you? You never lose that enthusiasm, that wonder. No, I mean, yesterday I just walked down to see the final installation of Seeing One Another. I had not been able to see it since all of our interpretive elements had been included. There's a whole section, for example, of this show called The Life of an Object, looking at how this African sculpture had come from Africa to the dealer, to Alfred Stieglitz, and there's research and there's photographs, and all with these extraordinary combinations of works by artists who are looking at themes of faith and modernism and still life and portraiture and it, they're just beautiful and they haven't been seen before together so I'm always awake to these visual moments of beauty of encounter and that anybody walking into the space can find that moment of connection or discovery um, and, and just aesthetic transcendence or new information. There's so much. You can never tire of it. Austin Bailey is chief curator for Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. Our conversation took place earlier this month. KUAF's concert series, The Lunch Hour, will be taking place on Saturday, February 25th during the 5th annual Black-owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo at the Fayetteville Town Center from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We will be celebrating Black History Month alongside more than 60 Black-owned businesses in the region while enjoying food from local Black-owned food vendors and music from artist and filmmaker Mike Day. For more information on the event, visit KUAF.com and look for The Lunch Hour. This is Ozarks at Large. A bill filed February 6th in the Arkansas Senate proposes to prohibit local restrictions on short-term rentals. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the law 
if approved, will nullify ordinances by cities and towns to control unregulated short-term rental sprawl. The language in Senate Bill 197, sponsored by Senator Joshua Bryant, Republican Rogers, is clear. Quote, a local government shall not enact or enforce an ordinance, resolution, rule, or other requirement of any type that prohibits or limits the use of property as a short-term rental unit. End quote. Speaking by phone yesterday, Bryant says Arkansans have a constitutional right to use their property without intrusion by the government. The reason I, I filed the bill is because we've got, we got multiple cities in different jurisdictions doing different things with their short-term rental issue. And I, I feel that property rights is, is, a, is a people's right. It's a state's right. So I just want to get all interested parties to the table to discuss you know, what, what solutions can we have that protects property rights, but also protects the interests of the cities uh, within our state. The draft bill was scheduled to be read and debated yesterday, Tuesday, before the Senate's City, County, and Local Affairs Committee, but Bryant deferred it. Short-term rentals are furnished apartments and houses patronized by tourists, workers, and business travelers seeking an alternative to commercial hotels and motels. The trend took root in the mid-1990s with Verbo, vacation rental by owner, and 15 years later became a global phenomenon after Airbnb launched private homestays in San Francisco. But it wasn't until recently that towns and cities, including Hot Springs, Little Rock, Fayetteville, as well as Jasper in Newton County, enacted ordinances to license tax and limit short-term rentals. Eureka Springs in Carroll County receives more than three-quarters of a million tourists annually who stay in the town's historic hotels, uptown motels, rustic cabins, cottages, and B&Bs. But in recent years, properties in Eureka Springs' historic and residential districts were being purchased, renovated, and flipped, many by outside limited liability corporations, into short-term rentals that advertised on Airbnb and Verbo without any city permits. In response, Eureka City Council banned all unpermitted short-term rentals in 2021. I strongly supported that and still do. Former Planning Commissioner and Transit Director Lamont Ritchie moved to Eureka Springs in the early 90s when bed and breakfast inns were first established in Arkansas. He transformed a historic motor court uptown into a licensed B&B, so understands the need for regulations. And in our three residential areas, bed and breakfast are available on a conditional use permit. And a conditional use permit requires an application to be filed with the Planning Commission Board of Zoning Adjustment. Notice has to be given to surrounding property owners. Um, A public hearing is held. People are eligible to come and voice being pro or against it. And there is a, a list of criteria which the commission is obligated to review and to determine whether or not um, a conditional use permit ought to be granted. One ordinance states no conditional use permits for a bed and breakfast, essentially a short-term rental, can exist within 200 feet of a licensed bed and breakfast to reduce glut. We have tourist lodging in our historic residential R1 zone district. Several years ago, permits stopped for those, but the ones that were already in existence were allowed to continue. If this bill 
passes, all of that goes out the window. Richie says if Eureka can no longer control short-term rentals, they will spread throughout Eureka, drastically reducing the number of apartments and homes needed for long-term rentals. We lose available housing for people who want to live here full-time and more especially people who work here. We have a really hard time finding people to work in all of the shops and restaurants and hotels that we have here because of the shortage of housing. We also depend upon people who live within the city limits to run for office and to serve on commissions and to be our volunteers for everything that goes on here. If we don't have people living in town because there's no place for them to live, we're going to lose that resource as well. We searched property records for Senator Bryant in Northwest Arkansas to determine if he owned or operated any short-term rental properties, finding none, which he confirmed when we spoke. Airbnb, headquartered in San Francisco, apparently supports legislative efforts in Arkansas to remove all restrictions on short-term rentals. A host provided us a copy of an email he received from Airbnb, encouraging him to contact his state representative to express support for Senate Bill 197. The nation's top vacation rental vendor wrote that it's critical for hosts capital H, to make their voices heard, to protect their property rights, and rights to host in Arkansas. Fayetteville has regulated short-term rentals since April of 2021, divided between Type 1 rentals, which have occupants on premises, and Type 2, with no occupants, those required to apply for conditional use permits. All owners must obtain a business license and submit to safety inspections. Jonathan Kurth serves as Fayetteville's Development Services Director. Uh, Honestly, it wasn't terribly surprising. Uh, Arkansas does have a a legacy of preempting local government uh, on a lot of areas. Kurth says 325 Type 2 permits are issued currently, 80 Type 1 are issued, with 97 currently under review. That leaves, he says, several hundred operating in Fayetteville unpermitted. Uh, When it comes to how this legislation may affect uh, Fayetteville or or local government statewide. Uh, We do have some concerns, and I think those have been enshrined in our ordinance, which uh, are protection of the uh, public safety, ensuring that uh, public taxes is being collected in the form of our hotel, motel, restaurant taxes. Uh, We also have concerns about neighborhood stability and nuisances. Uh, And um, the way the bill is currently written has the potential to drastically reduce our authority to to enforce any of those standards. We queried Logan Humphrey for this report. He's founder and CEO of Coho BNB, Arkansas's largest locally owned vacation rental management company. He declined to comment for now, but in previous interviews, he said that short-term rentals improve and diversify neighborhoods and provide property owners profitable income. The average rate for a nightly stay in Arkansas may range between $150 to more than $200, which could amount to, if fully booked, more than $6,000 a month. The Arkansas Municipal League serves as representative of Arkansas cities and towns before the state and federal governments. John Wilkerson serves as general counsel. Wilkerson says he's heard from a lot of concerned mayors, city planners, and lawyers about this proposed law. 
Well, as written, the bill uh, would prohibit uh, any regulation on short-term rentals, and that obviously has quite a bit of mayors uh, concerned about it. Um, with that said, um, we've been working with Senator Bryant closely on trying to come up with a compromise that we can all live with. So we're optimistic that we can uh, find that common ground. Florida appears to be the first state to prohibit local governments from banning vacation rentals 10 years ago, allowing existing ordinances to be grandfathered. Later, state lawmakers did allow local governments to deal with noise abatement, parking, and trash disputes. But a growing number of municipalities, including New York City, are approving strict regulations, including requiring hosts to live on site, limit the number of guests per night, and require all Airbnbs to register with the city. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. A bill failed in an Arkansas legislative committee yesterday, which would have put regulations on private schools that receive public funds. Josie Lenora with our partner KUAR has more. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has said her omnibus education bill will include money for needy parents to enroll their children in private schools. A bill sponsored by Republican Representative Jim Wooten of BB would require those schools to be subjected to standardized tests and admit every student who intends to pay their tuition with state dollars. The bill would also force private schools to cover the costs of standardized testing. Wooten told members of the House Education Committee it's intended to help taxpayers and parents. I don't like a test because to me, uh, a test is that point in time. But that's the only measurement that we have to be able to measure, are, are we making any progress? The bill was not well received by committee members who were concerned it could violate Supreme Court precedent on school vouchers. Some also worried the bill put a large burden on private schools, which may not be able or willing to accommodate every student. The bill failed with 12 lawmakers voting against it and four voting in favor. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. A classic 19th century play opens on the University of Arkansas stage this weekend. More about that just ahead. KUAF is supported by Penguin Ed's Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at Mission and Crossover in Fayetteville and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio, and curbside pickup at the historic B&B location, penguineds.com, for menus and more. This is Ozarks at Large. Hedda Gabler by Henrik Ibsen first hit the stage more than 130 years ago. It's dark and funny, and it's a story of relationships, manipulation, adoration, and patriarchy that caused quite a stir when it opened, and it still causes a stir. University of Arkansas Theater will open its production of Hedda Gabler Friday night. Last week, Lacey Post, the director, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. She says her journey to directing the play was different. I hated it the first time I read it. Uh, I was in high school, maybe in early college, but I either read it for AP English or for like a, you know, theater history course. I don't really remember the first time I read it, but I was a young woman and I thought that she was awful and I hated it. I thought, this script is, is, it, is terrible. Um, it doesn't promote anything good. And then I read it as an adult in 2020 um, for a script analysis class here. And I was mind blown how I related to her and how I felt about her differently because of all those years in between. And that says something about Ibsen's work that a play first produced in 1891 can feel, to me, very contemporary. It absolutely feels relevant. It absolutely still had all these themes that I felt like are in our current, you know, lives and in plays that we write today. I couldn't believe it. 
um, that it was 130 years ago and that we're still dealing with the same stuff. Complicated characters. Complicated characters. Um, there are no clear answers on anybody. You know, you have to do a lot of collaboration and negotiation to sort of figure out your take on these characters. Ibsen does not hand anything to you. Well, I think we can tell people that Hedda Gabler, the, the main character, she's married. She does not seem to be happy in her marriage. And um, there is another man in her life, which she has had a relationship with. And it's, and it's too trite to say it's a love triangle. It's an emotional prism that these characters have in relation to each other. Yes, and um, one of the fun things to direct Ibsen that you hit is, uh, you know, he's the father of the well-made play. So every single character in this play functions in a certain way to contribute to the main character's journey. Um, they all are a different thing that uh, drives her to her ultimate end. How familiar with either Ibsen or the play itself were cast and, and crew as you got started? Um, I don't think everyone had studied it before. Mm -hmm. I know that um, it's typically covered in a script analysis class for grads. I don't know about like theater history. I know that the undergrads for script analysis and theater appreciation classes are studying it now because they're being assigned to come and watch it. Um, so hopefully it'll stay in the syllabus, you know, but Typically, I think maybe Hedda Gabler is um, put to the side and they more likely teach Doll's House. Right. What, what attracts you? You mentioned that as you become an adult, there's something different. But what attracts you to direct something like Hedda Gabler? Um, she's the first female anti-heroine. You know, she's the first sort of villainous, unlikable woman to lead a play. Um, and I've done a lot of fun research about the people that have played her over the years and some of the earliest productions and how provocative it was and how, how hated this play was. I mean, anything that juicy is just so much fun for a director um, because you get to kind of look at how this play has moved through history and you get to contribute to that. There was a production in Iran like eight or nine years ago, shut down because it was too provocative for... This play has been shut down many <laughs> times. Um, you know, people walk out. People leave outraged. Um, I just read this great piece of criticism. George Bernard Shaw uh, had lots of negative things to say about this play. <laughs> and the woman that played Hedda at the opening in London, um, I'm, I'm blanking on her name right now, but there's really interesting stuff out there about her. She's got a book and biographies and she, uh, her retort to Shaw was, well, he wouldn't know, he's not a woman. He wouldn't know how to justify this character. He wouldn't understand it. Um, this play has always made people outraged. I think it's a play that has so much to teach us, even all these years later. It's a play that um, doesn't have easy answers. And, you know, spoiler alert, it is a tragedy. There is not a happy ending. But I think it has a lot to teach us. And I think it's a play that makes you think and reflect, and those are always worthwhile. What's it been like getting it ready? I know that we've had some snow and ice and university cancellations. Does that affect things? It does. <laughs> and, you know, we're in a new world. This post-COVID trying to do live theater, there's just it's just rife with challenge. But um, we've got a really solid, dedicated team. You know, the shop and the costume, everybody's just worked overtime to get it ready because we all lost almost a week with the weather. 
Um, and it's a hard play to put together anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think anything that's a giant challenge is a great play. It's a great project for a school because, you know, if you can do this in an educational institution, you can learn about how this really works out there in the professional world. It can be, um, you know, an in-your-face, shocking play. And it has some violence in mm-hmm. it. So, you know, be aware of that. Yeah, it's not for kids. Um, it is. It deals with some difficult subject matter, and it goes to a, some dark places. And what we have said to university students is, we're not promoting those things, but right. I think it's important that we can talk about them and show them on the stage in an accurate way. Um, even though this play is 130 years old, as we've said, it's it's got um, the kind of violence that people deal with every day here. So we, we're being very sensitive about that and also trying to stay true to the play. Lacey Post is directing the University of Arkansas production of Hedda Gabler. Opening Friday night at the University Theater. Production runs through the 26th. Tickets can be found at uark.universitytickets.com. You may recall we talked with co-founders of Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo last August. The next edition of the Expo is Saturday, February 25th at the Fayetteville Town Center. And last week again, co-founders Jasmine Hudson, Jaron Merchant, and Sierra Polk came to the Carver Center for Public Radio. I asked them what they've learned from their first few Expos. Execution and logistics. Um, so we learn something new every single year in regards to um, street block-off and closures and what's required there by city. Um, audio and visual, what's required. Um, so it can range very widely. And then also just the communication nuance by business. Some prefer email. Some prefer you go in person. Um, some are good with just that e- uh, email notification. They're going to show up. And you know they're going to do what they need to do. So um, a lot of learnings from year to year. There's always these slight tweaks and shifts. But I think this is one of the first times where, I mean, I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And we're here even doing press two weeks <laughs> before versus 48 hours before. So it's good. Everything you just said, I would imagine, I've never been a small business owner, but it all sounds like a metaphor for what it's like to open a business and keep it going. Mm -hmm. Yes. I totally agree with that. (laughs) Um, I know with with the expos, every time we do them, we try to reach back out to the vendors who participate afterwards to say, hey, here's a survey. Let us know how we did. Give us our feedback so that we can do better and improve and kind of make it a better experience every time around. And we learn something new from them every time, so we really appreciate them giving us candid feedback because it helps us kind of support their businesses even better. Um, So it's always a good time. It's always a learning opportunity. Um, we're more lifelong learners anyway, so we, we're nerds too, so we love to learn, love to kind of explore different things and um, kind of see how we can improve in our craft as well. So it's a good thing to help with that. I think the anticipation of it all, so like the businesses and the people that usually look forward to it that have visited in the past are just like, hey, it's about that time. When are we, when are we doing this? People are 
putting us on to different new businesses that we can add on. They're telling us of, uh, more resources that we can actually tap into, uh, different venues they'd like to see us pop up in, different areas or communities they'd like to see us pop, us in, pop up in. So it's always good to see. This year, uh, this next one, Saturday the 25th yes. at the Town Center. Mm-hmm. So we're going to shut yes. down the Faithful Town Center uh, February 25th. That's a Saturday from 10 to 4. We're going to have music, good food, good shopping, overall good people. It's a family-friendly event, so feel free to bring out the kids, bring out mom and dad, and just come have a good time with us. And even the change in location is a testament to some of the learning. So Theater Squared, absolutely beautiful venue. Mm. Everyone wanted to go back. However, there's these natural traffic um, uh, kind of areas that form. So certain places were high traffic, certain places were really low traffic. Mm-hmm. And we got that feedback from the businesses. So we were keen to listen to them. And the Fayetteville Town Center, just with this big open ballroom, we can have a more natural flow of traffic, which was really great feedback. And hopefully now the businesses are happy with not so many businesses being pulled into one area with all of the people and another set not necessarily having as much traffic. So because the the setup at theater squared in different rooms yeah and so not everyone might have top of mind been knowing to go to each of the rooms right. yeah exactly mm-hmm. and even with that like we had people on site like that were volunteers to be like hey don't forget to check out people on the third floor on the second floor but whether or not the customer wants to go all the way to the third floor or whether or not they can they feel like kind of taking that journey in some cases <laughs> um, is was a learning opportunity for mm-hmm. us so with everybody kind of being on the same floor it kind of creates some some evenness if you will um and it's it's just something that we're every time we do this we look forward to kind of taking our learnings and applying it however we can but theater squared is an amazing venue we love them over Mm -hmm. there and we highly encourage people to do events there specifically for sure but it's also to a testament to what you were saying we put on a great event every year we tend to outgrow the space that we use Mm -hmm. so we have even more vendors to accommodate this year we have even more attendees to accommodate this year so we're trying to find a bigger space so here comes Fayetteville Town Center they're just like we would love to have you guys Mm -hmm. so we're just like let's get everybody on the same plane Mm -hmm. easily accessible it's right here on the square. It's going to yeah. be a really good time. I'm so excited. If you go to blackownednwa.org, yes. you, you see this list, and you mm-hmm. can click on its direct links to to the websites. Yep. Yep. So you can do some early, you know, yeah, uh, studying and all of that, mm-hmm. for sure. Kind of map out a plan. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't know if which ones are going to be there. There were a couple mm-hmm. that over the past few weeks have really – garnered my attention mm-hmm. honey hole farm yeah mm-hmm. yeah we they? love angela so um actually sierra probably is the best to, to talk about that yeah honey hole farms they are an amazing organization um they have angela has a slew of chickens mm-hmm. that are laying farm fresh eggs and the eggs are amazing they're sometimes blue which i don't know if you guys have tried blue eggs but they're yeah. delicious i don't know if you guys have tried <laughs> farm fresh eggs but if you haven't Going and get into yeah. it while Eggs we're are a hot commodity while right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, and the prices on her website are mm-hmm. incredibly reasonable. They are. Valentine's they Day, are. trying to prove your love, give them some eggs. Give them some eggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to Angela. Shout out to Honey Hole Farms. It's, it's it's great. She's probably going to be expanding. I know at one point she wanted to um, see about how she can get her eggs to some of the local businesses here, so that that can kind of cut the cost for them as well. So mm-hmm. if anyone's interested in um, using some local eggs for mm-hmm. your 
food and things that are on your menu, please check out Honey Hole Farms. What what's the we know the value for introducing a business to perhaps a new clientele or, mm-hmm. or connecting with your clients. What's the value of the businesses being able to be under one roof? Sixty seven, seventy five businesses able to see each other and talk to each other well the benefit is having the actual entrepreneurs being able to see each other people that they may not have been able to connect with because you know running your own business you can get so um tunnel vision or siloed just because you're you're trying to manage your own front you get to connect with other entrepreneurs you guys can exchange advice exchange resources you can support each other monetarily or just help each other in as far as like growing and expanding and connecting so that's one huge caveat of just having all of those people in the same operating in the same space. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that over the years so many have connected and they've been coming to the expo so long that now we're even getting requests like, hey, can we all just be like, you know, set up next to each other? So it's turning into like this really great family and network mm-hmm. of uh, entrepreneurs that are kind of mind melding and masterminding um, on how to be successful in the area. Honestly, I think there's endless benefits. Like, we could probably sit here all day and run them off. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we're seeing is probably one of the best parts about it. Um, A lot of these businesses are still in growth phases. So they may not necessarily be at a point where they're able to afford commercial commercial business space, right? So commercial properties that come with the lease or based on the square footage, like there's a lot of moving pieces with that. So a lot of these businesses are still growing their their concepts to the point where they can afford commercial property. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of an opportunity for them to still get a lot of great sales, still get some visibility, still get um, some, an opportunity to connect with the community without the expectation of having to have a brick and mortar establishment in order to do that. So it's kind of helping them um, lay the foundation on the early end so that they can get to a point where they have a brick and mortar establishment and grow to that point Mm -hmm. um, and really provide a way for them to just practice talking about what they do, practice talking to customers, practice sales, and really just get into the habit of getting in front of the customer as well. Because a lot of them may have more of an online presence or maybe more of um, a remote business or a remote facing business mm-hmm. so it's kind of that that front of house if you will opportunity for them to connect with businesses directly and look them in the eye and shake their hand and just learn more about what's going on in the community as well think there are going to be any future entrepreneurs people who maybe have a business idea and this is just enough of a, a nudge that oh okay maybe I can do this Absolutely. So we have um, every every year we do have a few more businesses that come online, but this is definitely that springboard inspiration point if you're an aspiring entrepreneur to just come and network um, and get to know some of these uh, great business owners and kind of pick their brain, especially if in, they're in the same industry. What we love about the entrepreneurs here is that they're so open and willing to share. Um, and this, we're in such a growth state um, in the region that it's not a matter of really competition because what we'll have like a million people in Bentonville alone in like the next oh I don't know however many years yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so um by then we're going to just need more right Mm -hmm. the infrastructure is lending itself to more so the businesses need to lend themselves to more so that's why they're so open and um readily available to share their advice and learnings and thank god because 
you don't want to have to learn the hard lessons if you don't have to. That's mm-hmm. the power of mentorship. Um, so hopefully if you are an aspiring entrepreneur, this is the place for you to come and network for sure. Completely. I mean, honestly, a large part of what we're building is really that ecosystem for mm-hmm. black entrepreneurs in Northwest Arkansas. Um, it's Once you kind of come here, especially if you're here for one of the big three organizations, right, and say you decide to branch out and kind of do a side hustle or start your own business on the side, if you aren't already kind of tapped into that ecosystem, especially as a black entrepreneur, it's really hard for you to kind of figure out how to maneuver around it. So a large part of what we're building is that um, that formalized ecosystem for early entrepreneurs, for aspiring entrepreneurs, so that they can have a, a community to fall into and tap into once they start and not necessarily be made to feel like they're um, starting from scratch or starting without any support systems in place, if anything. Mm-hmm. And to build off of that support system, one thing I love about North Face Arkansas is they root for the underdog here. If you are home, growing and local, they will back you 110%. Jasmine Hudson, Jaron Merchant, and Sierra Polk are co-founders of Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas the Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo. The next expo is Saturday, February 25th at the Fayetteville Town Center. Details at blackownednwa.org. Protecting the Illinois River watershed is a popular idea, but... It is an extremely expensive and not an easy fix. Water is is a very dynamic thing to be working with. Water, erosion, and storm runoff. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope has that tomorrow on our show at noon and 7 and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and the Buffalo River, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Do you see what I'm doing with the towns? I do. That's okay. Well played. Uh, contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Karee Banton, Josie Lenora, and Mark Christ. We also had material from the newsroom at KUAR in Little Rock. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. What am I doing with the towns this week? Or the mammals? Oh, right? sure. We did Elkins yesterday, I Buffalo s- River today. I got it. That's good. I don't know what's going to finish the week. It's a challenge. Well, you're always up for it. I can tell you that much. My wife is working much of the week in Little Rock <laughs> this winter. So Your mind has plenty of time to yes. wander. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. You can continue wandering with us tomorrow.